Open your Bibles up to Daniel chapter 9. Now, I hope I didn't ruin the Christmas story for you this morning and the Christmas songs. It's when I talked about the, the angels there. You can study that yourself, come to your own conclusion on if they sing or not. I imagine actually listening to angels speak is probably like singing, so maybe even better. I don't know. Can you imagine hearing an angel speak? So, But Daniel chapter Number nine, we're actually continuing in Luke here in our Advent series, but we're going to go to Daniel nine first. But throughout history, there have been many occasions when people have said, that's impossible. That can't happen. Well, one of those was in January 13th, 1920. There was an article in the New York Times. It was a really reliable newspaper back then, too. And it said that uh, it was impossible for a person to get in a rocket and go to the moon. In fact, this article mocked a Professor Goddard who theorized it was possible to do. This article says this, says to claim that someone could go to the moon in a rocket is to deny a fundamental law of dynamics. Only Dr. Einstein, his chosen dozen, are licensed to do that. That Professor Goddard, with his chair in Clark College, does not know the relation of action to reaction. And all, uh, and, and of the need to have something better than a vacuum against which, against which to react, to say that would be absurd. Of course, he only seems to lack the knowledge that high school boys know. Ooh, that's kind of a slam there, wasn't it? Well... 49 years later, on July 17th, 1969, they printed a retraction. (laughs) Let's see here. What happened the day before July 17th, 1969? A rocket took off to space called Apollo 11, right? And Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, eventually on July 20th, 1969, landed on the moon and stepped out on the moon, right? I guess that guy who wrote the article was wrong. But in the 1920s, it seemed like an impossibility, didn't it? For some people, it did. And even before that, definitely it was. But someone figured it out. A bunch of men came together and figured it out. And they were able to do what once seemed impossible. Today, we're continuing our Advent series on God of the impossible. And from a human perspective, there are things in this world that seem impossible, that can never happen. But we serve a God who can, as Norm said this morning, who can do the impossible. Nothing is impossible with God. So we're going to study today, why should you trust God when life seems impossible? Let's pray to begin. Father, we bow our hearts before you in worship and study your word in reverence. This is the word of God. And I have a task before me that is impossible, and that is to communicate words of life. But God, I'm asking that you will empower me and allow your words to go into the hearts of people and change And change their thinking and change their lives. God, please do an impossible work right now. Humanly impossible, but not impossible with you. Oh God, in Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, we're studying God of the impossible. And last week we studied Zechariah and Elizabeth and they found themselves in an impossible situation. She was too old to have children, but yet she desired it her whole life. She was barren. And they had prayed throughout their life that God would give them a child. And eventually she was not able to have one because she was too old for that. But an angel came, Gabriel came to Zechariah when he was in the temple. And he was offering the offering of incense to the Lord and spoke to him and promised him he would have a child. So God promised them something impossible, humanly impossible is going to happen to you. And also we found that Israel was longing, along with Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were longing for the Messiah, but they were being ruled by Rome. So it seemed like an impossibility that the Messiah would come with such a strong empire. In the midst of this, in Luke chapter 1, an amazing celestial intervention takes place. And Zechariah hears the promise from God. He's before the Lord, and he's, remember if we said last week it was during the time of the sacrifice, had just taken place, I should say, and then there was during the time of prayers. So it's probably about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, in the evening, that's what they consider the evening, the evening prayers at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and he's praying before the Lord after he's uh, offered the incense, and the angel says, you're going to have a baby, and not only are you going to have a baby, but his name is going to be John And he's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. So the Messiah will come and he will announce the Messiah's coming. And so they faced an impossible situation and had impossible promises. And we talked about last week, how should you respond when faced with the impossible, right? We said you need to walk with God in righteousness. You need to talk with God in humility. You need to hold on to God's, lock on to God's promises in his word. And so this week, we're going to talk about why. Think about it. Why should they trust God? Next week, we're going to talk about Mary. And we're talking about Mary, how she was told something impossible. You're a virgin, but you're going to have a baby of the Holy Spirit. Like, that's an impossibility. And she had to have an an impossible explanation. Like, what do you tell your family? What do you tell your friends? So why should Mary trust Gabriel when Gabriel comes to her? Why should Zechariah and Elizabeth trust Gabriel? God, and when Gabriel tells them that God is going to do something impossible. Why should you trust God when you face impossible circumstances of life? So we're going to look at three reasons we should trust God today when we're faced with the impossible. Look up on the screen here in Luke chapter 1. When did Gabriel appear to Zechariah? Well, we look in Luke, Luke chapter 1. You don't have to turn there, but just look on the screen. We have the historical date up here, or we can track the historical date. It was during the time of Herod's rule. We know that ended about 4 BC. And then also we can look in Luke chapter 2. We can discern that it was during the time of Caesar Augustus. And so we can see some of the different historical markers in the scriptures to determine the time. And, and, and most scholars believe it was around 4 BC that Jesus Christ was born. So, so Gabriel appears when? Probably 5 BC, right? Because you got to have nine months of the pregnancy and all that. And so, so probably 5 BC, Gabriel appears to Zechariah and then to Mary six months later. And so he appears to them and tells both two Jewish people something impossible is going to happen. 
But you know what happened 500 years before that? Gabriel appeared to someone else. Who was that person that he appeared to 500 years before that? Was Daniel. So it's interesting to see the link between Zechariah and Mary and Gabriel appearing to them, telling God, telling them of the promises of God. And then 500 years before that, Gabriel did the same thing to a man named Daniel. Gabriel was an angel of God. Gabriel means mighty of God, or God is mighty. We don't really know much about him except that he was in the presence of God, and God would send him, uh, send him to give messages or deliver messages to different people. So he was kind of like a heavenly mail carrier, right? He was. I was talking to Gabe this past week, and I said, you know what your name means? You know, it means L is God, and Gabe, and the beginning of that is mighty, so God is mighty. And I said, basically... Gabriel was a gopher, God's gopher. Go for this, go for that, tell people about it, right? So 500 years before, in Daniel chapter 9, Gabriel appears to Daniel. So the year is 538 BC. So I put up a little timeline up here. It's my crude timeline. So you can see that's 538 BC is when Daniel had an appearance. uh, Gabriel appeared to him. And how do we know it was that year, 538 B.C.? Well, look down in Daniel chapter 1. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Xerxes, by descendant Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign. So here he says, uh, you want to know what year it is right now? By the way, I'm writing in the year of, he doesn't actually say 538 B.C., because that's a Roman calendar, okay? But he's saying, here's what was happening at the time, and we can track it back. To that time. Don't you love the scriptures? I mean, isn't that amazing how like, I mean, these things are written within time, right? How do we know these things took place, right? They give us historical markers to say, well, this is what's happening during this time of the year. Like these, what we're reading in the scriptures, this isn't a fairy tale, right? There's someone to just sit down one day and put a bunch of stories together. These are historical documents. And this is proved here by Daniel. And Daniel says in Daniel chapter nine, Hey, this is the year that I'm writing this. This is the year that this took place here. And this is, this is in the year of the first year of Darius, who was also known as Cyrus. Well, Darius was his, his kingly name and his, his name was actually Cyrus. He was a Medo Persian ruler. So history records for us in the Bible records for us that the Babylonian empire was then conquered by the Persian empire. And then that year started in 538 BC. Now I know we're going to get into some details here and you're going to be like, oh, I feel like I'm in a history class in high school again. But actually this is, this is really important. These details are very important because these dates and details are factual realities. Like what we're talking about here, when we talk about God, when we talk about truth, it's based upon historical realities, right? I mean, when you go to the doctor, and the doctor begins to talk to you. Sometimes there's things you don't understand that he's saying, right? I remember one time I was in the ER and I had a gallbladder problem. A gallbladder was infected. And I went into the ER and I was in a lot of pain. I mean, I was one of those things where I'm crawling in to the ER, you know? And I can remember the receptionist. I don't remember what he said, but it was something to the effect of take these papers and go to sit over there. You're going to be okay. You know, and it's like, I want to see the guy who knows, like, get me the doctor now. Like, I think I'm dying. I I actually thought I was dying, but I wasn't. He was probably right in the end. But anyways, I was in a lot of pain. But when you're going to the doctor, you want to know the person who, you want to talk to the person who has the factual realities, right? 
He, he knows things way beyond what you know. And when we go to the scriptures here, sometimes these details are there, and you're like, oh, that that's kind of bogs us down a little bit, doesn't it? But, the, but we want to know the facts, right? When you're faced with the impossible, you need the solid ground of reality, right? Your faith needs to stand on the facts, on the truth. Fairy tales don't help. Like all those Christmas movies out there that say, just believe. Like that's a bunch of fluff, a bunch of nonsense, isn't it? Like this is not nonsense. God's word is not nonsense. It's based upon factual realities. And so your faith is based upon truth. So the question we're asking here is why should you trust God when faced with the impossible? Because the answer is, first of all, because he fulfills impossible promises. He fulfills impossible promises. God is faithful to do what he says. God's promises are the solid ground your faith stands upon. God's word is not full of fairy tales or religious fluff to just help you get through your life. But God's promises are the historical, factual realities you must plant your life upon. So Daniel chapter 1, Daniel says, hey, this is what's happening. Daniel chapter uh, 9, I'm sorry, 9 verse 1. And Daniel 9 verse 2 says, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books. Well, what books is he talking about here? Well, he gives us a clue there. He says the book of Jeremiah. He's talking about the scriptures. So somehow the scriptures were transported from Jerusalem there over to him. He must have had the, the and he talks about this um, in the book of Daniel, that he had um, the Pentateuch, was able to read the books of Moses. He's obviously able to read the book of Jeremiah. So Daniel had some copies of the scriptures, the Old Testament Bible, was able to study and read those. <clears throat> so look down in verse number two. He says, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the numbers of the years that according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. And you're like, what is he talking about? Well, he perceived there's a promise in God's word here. When he was reading in Jeremiah, he, he perceived a promise of God. He was, and it's talking in, in relation to that, the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So you're like, okay, what is he talking about? So again, let's go back to history class. Let's discover a couple things. Got my crude timeline up here. In 722 BC, the Assyrian army led by Sennacherib came down and decimated the northern kingdom Israel, right? Remember, there was two kingdoms of Israel. There was the northern kingdom and Judah, the southern kingdom. Then in 605 BC, the Babylonians captured Jerusalem and Judah fell into their hands. And there was a, a slaughter. King Nebuchadnezzar came through and just decimated the city. It actually took place over a period of a number of years. There was three attacks upon Jerusalem by the Babylonians, 605 B.C., 596 B.C. And then last of all, in 586 B.C., uh, King Nebuchadnezzar came through there and just leveled the entire city. Like it was a piece of rubble. It was a hill of rubble. There was nothing left. In 605 B.C. is when Daniel and his companions, remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were taken to Babylon there. So that happened when he was probably about 15 years of age. And before the destruction of Jerusalem, there was a prophet named Jeremiah, and he was writing the words from God. Remember, one of the kings took his writings and burnt it and said, I don't want to hear this. So he wrote it over again. Well, that's the book we have of Jeremiah right there. You can go in the Old Testament, and you can read that book right there. 
And Jeremiah was warning the people that if they don't turn to the Lord, judgment is coming. And actually, he promises, that, promises them judgment will come. And so Daniel has now lived in Babylon for about 60-some years here. He's probably about 80 years old. And under Babylonian rule, he actually went from being a slave to being the prime minister of Babylon. You're like, how did that happen? Read the book of Daniel. And then he became the overseer and master of a group of men called magi or magicians. These were a group of Chaldean counselors who studied astrology and astronomy and also studied other ancient uh, literature. Daniel, he was a man of God. And he uh, studied the scriptures, right? So that's where he found his wisdom. But actually, remember, King Nebuchadnezzar put him over this group of people. If you can read that in Daniel chapter 9, 4, verse 9, King Nebuchadnezzar says, Oh, and he says, Daniel, name, Daniel, master of the magicians, right? So he's put over this group of people. And of course, he didn't seek wisdom in hocus pocus. He sought it in God's word. And then when the Babylonian Empire was defeated, the Medo-Persians took over, and King Cyrus seemed to be having Daniel in the same position there. And under the Persian Empire, Daniel was again recognizing this important decision. And so when you read Matthew chapter 2, remember those magi coming from Persia, where did they get their information from? 500 years before that, there was a man named Daniel who oversaw them. And he would would have passed on the promises of God to these men. And they would have then therefore came in in Matthew chapter 2. As we know, wise men or magi who came from the east to worship the king. So Daniel sought wisdom. And where did he go? He went to God's word. Written 70 years before he was writing this in Daniel chapter 9 here. And he looked at the promises of God. In fact, look down in Daniel chapter 9 the very end there and he says there must pass before the end of desolations of jerusalem namely 70 years so that's a promise that he recognized in jeremiah so would you keep your hand in daniel and go back to jeremiah 25 there actually are two passages in jeremiah where god promises that israel will face 70 years of oppression from babylon to remember this is before babylon came and captured jerusalem when this was written jeremiah chapter 25 i want you to notice as i go throughout this passage and read it god is promising things to judah and to the city of jerusalem but also to king nebuchadnezzar and the babylonians who have not fulfilled what he is writing here in jeremiah 25 in verse 8 the scripture says thus says the lord of hosts because you have not obeyed my word so this is the reason why they went into captivity You have not obeyed my words. Behold, I will send. So here's a promise from God for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord. And for uh, for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, I will bring, which doesn't mean he actually served God. It means God is the ruler of everything. And so even kings like King Nebuchadnezzar serve him, even if they don't know it. Okay. And I will bring, here's a promise, them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a whore, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. So there's that word there. Verse 10, moreover, I will banish them from the, uh, from the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. 
Verse 11, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon. How long? What does it say? 70 years. So he reads this, and he's like, wait a second. It's almost 70 years, right? And the Babylonian empire is crumbling, and now the Medo-Persian empire is arising. So he's like, this is all coming to pass here. Like, I see God's promise. Verse 12, he says, then after 70 years are complete, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation and the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. In fact, if you go to Jeremiah 29, 10, which is a passage a lot of people like to quote when they are talking about the promises of God, but you can see the same thing is is promised there. 70 years, you're going to be in, you're going to be under the oppression of the Babylonians. So go back to Daniel chapter number nine. Daniel chapter nine. God gives these promises to them to warn them, but also to give them hope, to give them hope. I was in, um, I've been in the stores, you know, shopping and stuff. And this is a couple of years ago, but I heard a mom in the store was getting upset with her child. And this mom said, you know, you're not going to get any presents this year if you don't behave. But do you think that was true? Do you think that mom's promise came true? There's uh, yesterday we were at Costco. There's this gentleman that saw our kids and was talking to them. And he started doing this whistling with his, his, his mouth. And he said, do you know the Christmas birdie promise? And and we're like, no, never heard that one. He goes, if you go outside and you make a wish for Christmas for a present and you see a bird, it will come true. And even if you don't see a bird, it will still come true if you're a good boy or girl. Like the promise has no foundation then, you know? It's like, I can figure that one out. I'm not even, anyways. So, but you know, people make promises and we even have kind of ridiculous promises like that in our society that we know are foolish. But when God makes a promise, when he says something, we can be 100% certain it's going to come to pass. And see, Daniel, when he saw that in Jeremiah, he goes, this is, this is true. God said it. Wow, look at this. This is amazing. It's come to pass. And so what was his response? When he recognized what God's word said and the promises of God, what is his response? Daniel chapter 9, verse 3. He says, then after I read these promises, after I realized what God was telling us, I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him in prayer and pleased for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord, my God, and made confession. You can read through this passage and he's saying, God, I'm so sorry. We're so sorry. We've sinned against you. We deserved the punishment that you gave us. You promised us that we would face judgment. We faced it. But God, you've also promised mercy and restoration. And so in Daniel chapter 9, verse 12, look at verse 12. He says, he, that's God, has confirmed his words. God's words, his promises came to pass, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled over us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem as it is written in the law of Moses. In other words, there were promises in the book of Moses. Remember those promises? Just like the promise in the book of Jeremiah, that all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor or the grace of the Lord of our God. He says, listen, God, I know that you have promises and I know you fulfill your promises. Like you are faithful. Please, God, work for Israel, and bring us the promise of restoration. 
to those who reject God, to those who stiff arm God, there are promises that should be feared, right? But to those who trust God, the promises of God bring hope, bring hope and joy. So Daniel places his faith in the promises of God. Look at verse 17. Now, therefore, O God, listen to our prayer. Listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy for you, for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary. That's your temple, which is desolate. Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your ear, your eyes and see our desolations in the city. That's Jerusalem. That is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness. Whoa. See that right there? He's like, we're not good enough. We're not righteous enough. Don't restore us because we're good people, right? Because what does he say? Because it's only because of your mercy that we can be saved. Oh, Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not. For your own sake, oh my God, because your city and your people who are called by your name. And notice he's claiming the words of God. He's in an impossible situation, right? I mean, he's a captive. The the Babylonian empire has crumbled and now it's the Medo-Persian empire. So actually, it's not like the Gentile nations are getting weaker. They're getting stronger, right? It's like, he doesn't see, it's like, are we actually going to be restored? I don't understand how this is going to take place. But he trusts God. And he trusts the God of the impossible. Why should Daniel and Israel trust God at this point in history in this impossible situation? Because God has fulfilled his promises, right? I mean, Daniel has seen it as he's read the scriptures. Daniel lived it. He's like, oh, yeah, 70 years, Babylon will fall. It happened, right? I mean, it was right in front of him. And guess what? He believed that it was going to happen in the future as well. I imagine that Daniel read passages like this in Numbers 24, 17. It says, I see him. This is the prophet Balaam who's prophesying about the future. I see him. Well, who's that? It's talking about the Messiah but not now, so it's in the future. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, that's Israel, and a scepter, that's a king, it's Messiah, shall rise out of Israel. Where do you think the Magi in Matthew chapter 2 got the idea that a star would announce the birth of a Jewish Messiah, right? Right there, and it's right, Numbers chapter 24, and Daniel must have taken this and passed this along to them. See, Daniel believed God's promise, and he passed those promises on to other people. And God in his mercy then explains the promises of God to Daniel. Look down in Daniel chapter 9, verse 20. He says, while I was speaking and praying, so he's in the midst of praying and confessing my sin, and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man, the angel Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand speaking to me. So the angel Gabriel appears to him at the evening sacrifice. And you're like, wait a second. I thought that he was in, I thought he was not in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was decimated, right? What's he doing? Well, he's praying, praying three times a day. 
morning, noon, and evening. Evening is 3 o'clock in the afternoon during the time of evening sacrifice. So 70 years before, when he was 15 years old, he would go to the temple and he would pray three times a day, right? He's still doing that 70 years later, right? And he's praying during his evening sacrifice, which is the time that there was no sacrifice taking place. And Gabriel appears to him. Now remember this, because what's going to happen 500 years later? Gabriel is going to be in the temple, the temple that was promised. We're going to see this later, the temple that was promised, that was going to be built later on. And he's at, it's about 3 o'clock during the evening prayers, and Gabriel appears to him, right? So just start putting some of that together in your mind. And what's Gabriel's role to both of these men who are faced with impossible situations? God, he wants them to understand God's promise for them. And I want you just to think right now about the, the impossible situation that you find yourself in. I mean, even this past week, I've heard from people in this church and diagnoses that they've been, they've been told and doctors have told them different things. Financial problems that you're going through. Uh, family members you're going to see next week that you've been giving the gospel to for years, right? And some of these situations that it seems so impossible. Like, how can God work through these things? And maybe you took the challenge last week to, to lock on to God's promises this week. Maybe you took a promise. You said, God, this is my promise. I hope you did that. But I want to answer the question this morning. Why should you trust God that he's going to fulfill that promise? And it's because God is faithful. He will do what he says. Why should you trust God when faced with the impossible? Because he fulfills impossible promises but also he decrees impossible plans. Daniel read the promise of God in Jeremiah, right? And what did he do? He repented for the nation, but even himself, he repented and he prayed in faith to God. Verse 19, he says that. He, he says, I, I, Lord, please hear. Lord, please forgive. And at the end of that verse, who does he pray for? Because of my city, that's Jerusalem, and the people called by your name. So he's praying for the Jewish people. He's praying that they'll be restored back to Jerusalem. This is very important to understand all this, right? I was reading an article this past week talking about next year, 2019. And someone said that there's potentially going to be a recession in 2019, which is interesting when I was reading that. I was like, man, I thought I read that last year too. So I went to that same that newspaper and went back and sure enough, there was supposed to be a recession in 2018. And you know there might be, but the point is, we just don't know, right? But God does. Why? Because God is sovereign, right? He writes history. God knows what will take place. God knows the future. He's sovereign. So look down in verse number 24. So hold on to your mathematical thinking caps, okay? Don't tune out. This is important. So verse 24, 70 weeks. So let's stop right there first. Gabriel uses the word weeks here, and the Hebrew word for weeks is sevens. So you can read it like this, 77s. And the Jews had two ideas of sevens. You had six days, and the seventh day was a Sabbath, right? That was a week. Then you also had the sevens of years, that is six years to work the ground, and the seventh year was a year of rest. And that's what it's talking about here. It's talking about the years, six years plus seventh year. So it's 70 times seven years. So what's 70 times seven? It's 490. So you could read it like this. 20, verse 24, 490 years are decreed about your people. So who is that? The Jewish people and your holy city. Where is that? It's Jerusalem. 
And so it's decreed and it's planned. Like, here's, here's the plan of God. Let me give you a little insight here, Daniel, on God's plan for Israel for 490 years. Or uh, 490 years, yes. So look down in verse number 25. He says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. So what, when did that happen? That was Nehemiah chapter 2. Artaxerxes declared that, that Jerusalem should re, be rebuilt, right? And then to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven sevens. That's 49 years. Okay? You tracking along? Keep going. Keep with me here. Okay? So what year was that that was decreed? It was 400. Let me get my little timeline up here so you can see that. Maybe it'd be easier for you. 445 BC, Nehemiah chapter 2, Artaxerxes declares or decrees that Jerusalem should be rebuilt. And then 49 years later, they're actually in Jerusalem and they're actually able to live there. So the Jews actually have been restored to be able to live in Jerusalem again and be able to, um, to come back to the land there. And then, in, so that takes us to 396 BC. And around that time is Malachi wrote his last uh, his prophetic book, which is the last prophetic book of the Old Testament. So prophecy and the writing of scripture is done by this time in 396 BC. And so closes the revelation of God. And the next time that God will communicate to the world is when? In 5 BC, when God comes to Gabriel, or Gabriel comes to Zechariah in the temple. So the book of verse 25, and he says, then there's going to be another uh, 62 more sevens. So th- if you multiply that, that's 434 years on top of the 49 years, right? Which adds up to, anyone got it? 483 lunar years, which is one, a hundred thousand, uh, sorry, 173,880 days. Okay. Now, one of the things that's difficult about these calculations is that they were basing their calendar on the lunar calendar, and ours is on the Roman calendar. So the lunar calendar has 360 days, and we have all these things that are like leap years and all those kind of crazy things that happen, okay? So it is actually hard to take these days and then try to plug them in and find out where they land on our calendar. But generally, 483 years later leads us to 30 A.D., Okay, so think about that. March uh, 445 BC was when Jerusalem was uh, said they could start rebuilding. And then 483 years later leads us to 30. But what happened in 30 AD? Like what happened that year? Around that year? What happened? The crucifixion was around that time, right? And so notice what's happening here. He's like, listen, you can actually calculate to when the Messiah is going to come. Isn't that crazy thing about it? So look at verse 25. He says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, so 445 BC, to the coming of the anointed one, that's the word Messiah, Christ in Greek, a prince, there shall be seven sevens, 49, right? And then 62 weeks, which is 434 years, shall it shall be built again with squares and moat. In a troubled time. So those years are going to have troubled times. Did they have troubled times during those years up until the time of Christ? Yes, they did, right? And then verse 26. And after those 62 sevens, those 434 lunar years, and appoint an anointed one, that's the Messiah, shall be cut off and shall have nothing. That was around 30 AD. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy a city. So there's another prince 
who's going to destroy the city of Jerusalem and the temple. When did that happen? 70 AD, right? The Jewish people revolted in 67 AD and Titus comes through with 100,000 Roman troops and they level the city. Like a million Jews die in 70 AD and the temple and the city is destroyed. So that's when that was fulfilled. And look, you can keep reading. It says in the end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war and desolations are decreed. So in verse 25, it says there's an anointed one that's going to come. I want you to notice something that this anointed one lives during those 62 sevens, right? And then he's cut off after those 62 sevens. So you might be like, okay, what does that all mean? Okay. The idea is the prophecy is this, is he's going to live during the first 483 years of time. And then he's going to die after that. What's he talking about here? There's going to be a Messiah that's going to be cut off. I mean, if you don't believe the Bible is true, read this passage, right? Look at world history compared to this scripture right here. So it's amazing how God is able to put all this together for Daniel by the mouth of Gabriel. So 49 years. Let me do a little. You can see the math there in the bottom there. 49 years plus... 434 years, there's, we're missing some years, right? We're missing seven years. And so that's what he says down in verse number 27. He talks about that. Between verse 26 and 27 is a gap of time. And I believe that verse 27 has not been fulfilled yet. It's not taken place yet. And I don't have time to do justice and go through all that right now. So we're not going to do that. But you can read through verse 27 and, and understand that as you... Uh, Maybe we'll understand prophecy and things like that. But the idea there is this, is that that, those seven years are still to come. And now we are in the church, the age of the church right now. And God's redemptive plan is taking place and being carried out through the church. But God still has a plan for Israel, which is crazy to think about. Think about this. How many nations have come against Israel and tried to destroy it, right? I mean, what country has ever survived? What ethnic group has ever survived being deported Right. And being forced to change their culture and their language and everything. And they've been able to survive through time. It just doesn't happen. You know how many times I looked this up. I was trying to discover how many times has Israel faced like a a Holocaust or a time when people just try to wipe them out. And honestly, the list got so long. I just like, I just can't. I don't have time for that. You know, it's just there's so much there. I mean, it's so sad, but also shows you something about the faithfulness of God. Right. I mean, God has a plan for Israel. He's sovereignly working. I mean, so much so that this is crazy. Maybe not crazy for us, but throughout time, there's Jewish people living in the land right now that they inhabited thousands of years ago, speaking Hebrew. Like that is pretty amazing to think about how God has superintended over history and is carrying out his plan. And God has a future plan for Israel. How is it possible that Israel has survived. How is it possible that God carried out this plan even up to having the Messiah come? It's because God is in charge of it all, right? I mean, understanding these things, maybe you didn't grasp all of it, but just grasping the idea that God actually in his prophecy and the prophetic um, writings of the Old Testament has told us what was going to happen and it came to pass and he has more that's going to happen. It should strengthen our faith, right? I mean, we should look at that and be like, God's sovereign. And so you think about your little short history of life, right? 
right? When you think about the, the whole history of this world, realizing that God is moving along history in the direction that he wants it to go, right? we just have a little bit of time. And the question for us is what side of God's plan are you going to be on, right? I mean, will you be like Daniel who sees God's promises and, and see God's and hears of God's plans? And then he says, I'm going to repent and trust God and follow him. Are you going to be like most of Israel and, and many of the Gentiles who decided just to go their own way and reject God? And they found themselves on the wrong side of God's divine plans. And see, here's a, here's a mind-boggling reality, and that is that God is 100% sovereign. And he's over history, but he gives you a choice of which side you want to be on. So in the midst of your impossible situation, remember God is the God of the impossible who's sovereign over all. And our response must be to submit and to trust in him. Then last, why should you trust God when faced with the impossible? He offers impossible propitiation. Verse 26, Daniel 9. Gabriel explains the promise of God found throughout the Old Testament. And that is, there's going to be a Messiah that's going to come. Verse 26 reads, an anointed one, in the middle of the verse there, anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. The word cut off is an interesting word. It's used in the Old Testament a couple of times to to explain execution or killing. In fact, Genesis chapter 9, verse 11, Deuteronomy 20, 20, Jeremiah 11, 19, those are three passages that talk about it in that way. So the idea here, the, the prophecy here, is that there's going to be a Christ, a Messiah, an anointed king that's going to come, and he's going to be killed, executed. And actually, even more than that, he's going to have nothing. And the idea there, he has nothing for himself, right? I mean, he's not dying for his own sins. It's not because of his own sins he's dying. He's dying for the sins of the world, which is actually lines up with Isaiah chapter 53. So why trust God when faced with the impossible? Because, listen, God can do the impossible of forgiving you for your sins. Like that's an impossibility unless God is the one who is at work. God's promise to Daniel and to Israel was that the Jewish Messiah would come and offer the humanly impossible propitiation. Right? The word propitiation is the idea that it satisfies, something satisfies God's wrath or it pays for the, the requirements, right? So if you're going to get a ticket from the police, you'd go into the court and you would pay for that. It would satisfy the wrath, if you want to say that, of the law, right? And Jesus came to this world and he satisfied the wrath of God. John 1, or 1 John 4.10 says, And this is love, not that we have loved God. Listen, it's not, you're not forgiven of your sins because you have done anything, right? It's not because you love God so much. No, but he loved us. But God's wrath is satisfied because he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That was the promise God gave to Daniel. The Messiah would be executed, but not for his own sins, but for the sins of the world. In fact, one of the promises that God gives is in John chapter 3, verse 36. This is really interesting. I was thinking about it. God offers promises and plans and propitiation all in one verse. In John chapter 3, verse 36, Jesus promises, whoever believes in the Son, so what's the plan? To send the Son, right? To die for the sins of the world. Whoever believes, there's the promise. If you believe in the Son, you have eternal life. Like, that's a promise from God. How 
Do you know you can believe it? Because he's faithful, right? But notice the other promise. If you do not obey the son, you shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. So God's promises should bring us fear if we reject him, right? And if you're in here today and you're like, I just don't really care, or I'm going to live my life however I want to, but God's promises should strike fear in your heart, right? Because you're separated from him and he promises you that if you do not follow him and believe him and obey him, that you will not see life, but God's wrath remains upon you. But listen, if you're in here and you're a believer, you've given your life to Jesus Christ by faith, you have the promise of everlasting life. In fact, it's not just a hope to come. You have it now, right? And it's a hope that will find its reality in eternity. So what about you? Are you in an impossible situation right now? Think about all these different individuals that were facing impossible situations. Daniel was to believe Gabriel about the future birth of Messiah. Why should he do that? Well, because he saw God's promises come to pass. Because he witnessed God carrying out his plans. The fall of invincible Babylon took place. And also, as Daniel said, because he knew that he couldn't be righteous in himself. It was only God that could offer propitiation for his sins. Why should Zechariah believe Gabriel, this elderly wife, is going to have a baby? Well, he's, he's standing in the temple that God promised Daniel was going to be built, right? Isn't that pretty crazy to think about? He saw God's impossible plan. He's a Jew that was brought back, not personally, but his ancestors were brought back to Jerusalem, right? I mean, he's sacrificing lambs as a, as a priest, realizing that he can't pay for his own sins. Only God can forgive him. Why should Mary believe Gabriel's promise? that she as a virgin will have a son because God, she's seen the impossible promises of God come to pass. She was told that her, of the plan for Elizabeth, that she's going to have a baby. Just go see her, like six months, right? See what my plan is for Elizabeth. Oh, wow. Look at how God gave her a son. And also she knew she needed a savior, right? I mean, that's what she's saying. Like, I'm blessed the Lord because I am in need of a savior. God who saves. And think about this. One year after the birth of Christ, or maybe two, maybe a year and a half, why did the Magi from Persia believe a baby was born? Right? Well, Daniel, their ancient scholarly father, must have passed on the promises of God. Daniel must have passed on the work of God 500 years before. And, and I, I was thinking about this. As those men were studying those scriptures and maybe even maybe even some things Daniel wrote down, his book that he obviously had there probably in Persia. I imagine that throughout history they're thinking, oh, look how God has brought all these things to pass. It's pretty amazing to think about. Daniel and Zechariah and Mary and all Israel faced impossible situations, but God was faithful. God is sovereign and God is the Savior. And so why should you trust God? Because he fulfills impossible promises. Go to his word. Seek out his promises. Cling to them by faith. He's faithful. Because he has, he has impossible plans that he decrees. Trust God. God, you're sovereign over my life. Go to him in prayer. Say, God, I know you're the ruler of my life. I trust you. And he offers impossible propitiation. And if you're a person here, 
and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ by faith, repented and believed in the Lord, he came to this world to save you from your sins. Trust him today. And as believers, we can rejoice that God has saved us. Let's trust him as our savior, as our sovereign, and as the faithful one. Let's pray. Father, we humbly bow before you. So feeble in our thinking, so weak in our understanding, all we have to cling to is the truth that you've given to us. And the Holy Spirit you've given to us to help us to understand it. So I pray for every person in this room. God, help them to cling to you and your character and your truth found in your word. God, I pray that you'll help us to go to your promises. and Claim them, the promises that you've given to us as believers, claim them for ourselves. God, I pray you'll help us to trust your sovereignty. I believe that you are God and there is none else. You are God and there's none like you. And you do declare the end from the beginning. So I pray for the people in here, God, that you've given them a choice. Which side are they going to live on? I pray, God, they'll live on the Lord's side. And I pray for our church or for anyone in here that doesn't know you. Oh, God, I pray they'll reach out in faith. I pray first they'll fear your promises and they'll realize if they trust you, they don't have to fear. They can have hope. So God, bring people to you today. In Jesus' name, amen.